0: Would you open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, and I'll tell you, I started to just read this whole chapter this morning. This is a good chapter, but it's 58 verses long. I didn't want y'all to think that we weren't going to get out of here before lunch. But I'm still going to preach on this whole chapter, <laughs> but I'm going to paraphrase part of it, but I want, to, I want you to just remain seated for now, because I'm going to read a good bit of it, and to think these words I'm about to read were written by a man who just shortly before this firmly believed that Jesus was just a dead man buried in Jerusalem until he met the risen Lord on the road to Damascus. And this is what he wrote to the Corinthian believers and to you and me, 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. I want you to pay attention to that. He said, you all have taken your stand on this. And then he goes into the gospel he preached. He reminds them of it. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you, as of first importance or as a matter of most importance that christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to peter and then to the 12 after that he appeared to more than 500 people 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because i persecuted the church of god but by the grace of god i am what i am and his grace to me was not without effect hallelujah no i worked harder than all of them yet not i but the grace of god that was with me whether then it was i or they this is what we preach and this is what you believed But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, Look at verse 19 with me. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. In fact, the King James Version says if that's the case, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, we are of all men most miserable. And the Message Bible paraphrases it like this If all we get out of Christ is a little inspiration for a few short years, we're a pretty sorry lot. Verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, Let me paraphrase part of this for the sake of time. Paul goes on to explain the resurrection. He said, since death came through one man to all of us, resurrection comes through one man to all of us. In other words, because Jesus lives, you and I will also live. We'll be raised just like he was raised. And that leads him into the subject of death. Raise your hand if your life has ever been touched by that old wicked enemy called death. He tells him in verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. In verse 29, he says, but now if there is no resurrection, what will those who do who are baptized for the dead? I'll probably never forget this passage right here because I had to write a paper on it one time. We won't go into that. But he said, if the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? He goes on to tell them, if the dead aren't raised, then let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. What a, what a sad life that is. Verse 33, he says, don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good morals. Can I just get an amen right there? Who you hang out with matters. So he said, in light of the resurrection, he's still talking about the resurrection from the dead. He said, so come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. Well, there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Then he goes into the resurrection body, your resurrection body, my resurrection body. He describes what it will be like. He tells them flesh and blood won't inherit the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. We're going to be and listen, that's good news. you know what that means? It means when you're resurrected, you're not going to be in that old decrepit body. I shouldn't have looked at anybody when I said that. I'm sorry. As a pastor, I'm looking at the walls. You're going to get a different kind of body. I was I was thinking the other day, I don't know, my mind sometimes, I was thinking about these, you know, people that are organ donors. I thought, I wonder if a Christian donates say a heart to an unbeliever and then the rapture takes place, I wonder what's going to happen to that sinner who's got the believer's heart. I don't know. I was just thinking about this and I thought, well, I better find out. And I'm I'm reading in the scripture. I'm going, oh, we get a new body. Hallelujah. Verse 51, he says, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we'll be changed in in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye. At the last trumpet, how many times have I stood by people's graves and read this? For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we'll be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. And he says that then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Oh, where, O death, is your victory, and where, O death, is your sting? Now, I want to I get to the other end of my text. The very first verse, he said, I'm reminding you of the gospel I preached on which you have taken your stand. Everybody go to the last verse, verse 58. After he gets through explaining all this stuff about death and the resurrection, therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Would you stand with me for a moment and let me pray over this? I want to talk to you this morning about taking your stand, taking your stand. Father, I thank you for your word. And Lord, not just your word, but I thank you for the fact that this is the day we celebrate something that actually happened. You, Lord Jesus, rose from the dead, conquered death, hell, and the grave, took the keys of the kingdom, and gave them to your church. I thank you that we too will be raised like you, and we will join you in the air, and that we will live with you forever. And I pray that you will now Bless our efforts in this service. Put your thoughts in my mind, your words in my mouth. Let your presence be felt by all who will hear your message this morning, Lord. And we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. When I was growing up in the church and in a Christian home, I remember Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday being one of, if not the, most important Sunday of the year. One of the most important Sundays. It was the one Sunday that everybody went to church, even people who didn't usually go to church, and as a Christian holiday or holy day, it was, in many ways, considered to be even more important than Christmas, and that was probably difficult for some of us as children to comprehend, simply because at Christmas we so enjoyed the presents we would get. But what did we get at Easter? Well, the house would smell of vinegar, <laughs> and then we'd, we'd just get to eat. Hard-boiled eggs, and and then egg salad sandwiches for a few days. How many of you grew up on that? <laughs> maybe maybe some candy, maybe. And and something else we got to do during this season that little boys didn't get real excited about was to go clothes shopping. And parents would take their kids out and buy. New suits and ties for the little boys and new dresses and shoes and purses for little girls. I still remember one of the suits I got. It was kind of a green and white plaid jacket with solid white pants that matched my white shoes. Some of you can probably guess just about what year that was. And everybody in the family would wear outfits that matched each other, whether you wanted to or not. But Easter Sunday was just the big day in the church. Now we've come a long way. I mean, we, we now have a society that doesn't even seem to know that little boys wear suits and little girls wear dresses. Don't you just miss the days when things weren't so messed up and Easter Sunday was a big deal? Well, I've come to tell you it's still a big deal in the church. Amen? It's still one of the greatest Sundays of the year. And the doctrine of the resurrection is still the one thing that can give the most hopeless life a hope that reaches beyond this life. I'm telling you that the doctrine of the empty tomb or the doctrine of the resurrection can turn your life around. It is at the very heart of the gospel. In fact, without it, we wouldn't have a gospel. In this chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul gives us a pretty detailed explanation of the doctrine of the resurrection and how it affects our lives right now in this lifetime and how it will affect us for eternity. He explains how Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and on the third day was raised from the dead, and then he explains our own resurrection one day, and then he goes into our resurrection body and what it will be like. And he describes how that because of the truth of the doctrine of the resurrection, the one thing that we all face, death, has been swallowed up in victory. And so that's the very heart of the gospel. And he tells the Corinthian believers, you have taken your stand on that. And he tells us that we can take our stand on that. You can can depend on that. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but we live in a world where nothing seems stable anymore. In fact, it seems that everything in this world is quite unstable. But when Paul explained the doctrine of the resurrection, he couched it, all of it, in these matching statements that. Stand like bookends on both ends of the doctrine of the resurrection. Verse one, you've taken your stand on this. And then the last verse of the chapter, like the other bookend, at the other end, therefore, stand firm. And so if, if if you've been feeling the instability of the world around you, if if you've been fretting a little bit and wondering what's going to happen next and where this is all leading us, I've come to tell you. I've come to talk to you about taking your stand in the hope of the resurrection. It's still something you can stand firm on. And I let me. I don't always do. It's. I, I want to give you the three things I want to talk to you about. And there's something that the Lord laid on my heart for somebody that I'm gonna. It's gonna. I'm gonna lead up to it. But I'm gonna talk to you first about about taking your stand. I want to talk to you about the fact of the resurrection. Then I'm going to talk about the life that we must live in view of that resurrection. And then I want to talk to you about the death that we face. And and then in conclusion, I'm going to I I'm, I feel like the Holy Spirit laid something on my heart that hopefully will minister to all of you, but I just feel like it's for somebody for sure let me start with taking your stand. Let me talk to you about taking your stand, the fact of the resurrection. And I want to take you to Corinth for a minute. Corinth is a Greek city, and Greeks just didn't believe that anyone could die and then be resurrected from the dead and live again. I mean, to them, it just didn't seem possible that someone could die and then come back to life again in a body. Bodies just don't come back alive in their understanding, and the skepticism of the Greeks had started to infiltrate the thinking of the church at Corinth. The attitude, I could say it this way, the attitude of the world around them had started to affect the believers in Corinth, and that's because attitudes are contagious, And keep in mind that not long ago, not long before this, Paul himself, the man who wrote this, was a firm believer. He firmly believed that Jesus was just a dead man buried in Jerusalem. And so when Paul hears that there are people in Corinth, in the church, who are saying, there's there's no resurrection of the dead? Can't be. It's impossible. He knew that he had to deal with this, he knew that this doctrine of the resurrection had some not not only serious doctrinal implications, but also some very practical implications for for life. And so he knew he had to deal with this, this thing head on. And so beginning with the doctrinal implications, he addressed the issue by raising the question, how can some of you say, that there is no resurrection of the dead. Now, now, follow with me Paul's logic here for just a minute. First of all, if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised from the dead. Do you, you understand what that Paul is saying? If there's no resurrection, Jesus is just a dead man buried in a tomb in Jerusalem. And here are the doctrinal implications of that. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And more than that, we're false witnesses about God. He said, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins, but hold on, it just gets even worse, because if the body of Jesus was still laying in a tomb... Then everyone you know who has died in Christ are lost. Raise your hand if if you know anybody, a family member, a loved one. Raise your hand if you know anybody who has died in Christ. Raise your hand. All said, well, if Jesus, if there's no resurrection from the dead, all those people, you know, who died in Christ, they're just lost. They're gone. They had no hope beyond this life, and we will never see them again. And that affects every one of us. So Paul paints this picture of the utter hopelessness that we all have or that we all face if, in fact, there's no resurrection from the dead. He said, if that's the case, you have believed Listen to this word. In vain. Do you hear that? Do you hear those words? In vain. In other words, it's all vanity. It doesn't mean anything. Nothing in this life matters. We 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 live and work and toil and strive and we suffer and we get older, we age, our bodies will start to wear out and eventually we die. And it doesn't it doesn't mean anything. There's no purpose in it. If what some of you are saying is true, it's all in vain. Without the resurrection, life itself has no meaning, no purpose. It's just vanity, meaninglessness. Well, I've lived lived long enough in this life now to understand that and so have some of you it's like some days you feel like the gerbil on the wheel if this is all there is then this is all there is and i've seen enough i've seen enough of this you can just get me out of here now it's all vanity what's the point in living If all we get out of Christ is a little inspiration for a few short years, we're a pretty sorry lot. We are of all men most miserable. We are to be pitied more than all men. Can't be any plainer. And there is a whole generation... That has now grown up in this country, most of whom, I'm afraid, do not know the truth about what happens at the end of this life. And that's why they don't have any hope. And that's why they don't want to work. It's why they're willing to sell their soul to a, a government that's rebelled against God in some, so many ways. They're just willing to exist for themselves and just survive on handouts or they don't know. There are a lot of people in this world who just don't know. They they feel that the only hope they have is in this life and that there's nothing beyond this life or this world. So they have developed, they sort of devolved into a hopeless, unmotivated, selfish, unloving people and, and they need to hear the words of the apostle Paul this morning, but Christ Has indeed been raised from the dead. And Paul said, Let me remind you of that gospel that I preached and you received and on which you have taken your stand. And he reminds them Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, he was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living. And then he appeared to James then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me while I was traveling down the road to Damascus when suddenly a light from heaven flashed around me. And I fell to the ground and heard him call to me by name. And he said to me, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You see, the the problem... The, the problem, I'm getting too excited, aren't I? I'm, let me calm down. The problem with you Corinthians letting the world convince you that Jesus is dead is the fact that there are just too many eyewitnesses, people who at the risk of losing their very lives are declaring, we have seen the Lord and he's alive. And by the way, some of them have been to the tomb this morning and the stone was rolled back and the angel declared, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here. Look for yourselves. He is alive. So you see, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And since he's been raised from the dead, so will we be raised from the dead to live forevermore. That's why this life is not all in vain. That's why I can face tomorrow, because he lives. It's not only in this life that I have hope, that's what this next generation needs to hear. You'll see. You'll see, One, one day, You'll understand, if if you live long enough, you'll know that you don't find any hope in this old sin-ridden world. The message of hope that politicians and leaders of this world offer is only an illusion that leads to further disappointments as this old world grows more and more evil as the days go by. But the hope that I'm passing on to the next generation is not of this world. I'll take my stand on the sure foundation of the gospel of the resurrection. Jesus Christ lives, and because he lives, I can face tomorrow until the day I die. Because since Christ is risen from the dead, when he returns, he said, we'll be changed In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, and the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, will be changed for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable. That's why I don't grieve as this body, listen, listen, this old tent To use the words of Paul, as this old tent wears out, I don't have to grieve. It's okay. Tents are temporary dwellings. You can sew it up. You can patch it, but it's going to keep wearing out. Why? Because one day we're going to put off this tent. We don't live in tents forever. They're supposed to wear out. And he said, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that's sown imperishable, it is raised, or the body that's sown is perishable, but it is raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, but it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. And it's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But because I'm taking my stand on the hope of the resurrection, I'm going to inherit the kingdom of God. I'm going to have an imperishable, strong, strong, glorious body. You don't have to go to the gym for that. Let me talk about the life we must live in light of the resurrection. Now, this is where he gets practical. You see, now that's the doctrinal part. Let me tell you the practical part. How do you live because of that? You see, if you've you've ever wondered how this world... Maybe how this country has gotten to be so bad and so evil. To a generation that has never taken their stand on the hope of the resurrection, the gospel, there's no reason to live like there will be a resurrection or a kingdom of God to inherit. Did I say that simple enough? Paul said, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So people who've never taken their stand on the resurrection only live for this life because they don't know they have anything else to live for. This is where Paul gets real practical in explaining the implications of the resurrection to this life. And let me break it down for you. There are three areas of living that Paul addresses in light of the resurrection. In other words, if you're going to take your stand on the resurrection, it will affect these three areas of your life. In fact, the resurrection can't not affect these three areas of your life. Pardon my bad grammar. I'm talking about how you live your life. Let me just list them for you, and then I'll show you this in the scriptures. These three areas. You ready? Evangelism. Suffering. And how you how you deal with suffering and morality. So let's take the first one. first of all evangelism if you if you I'm talking about reaching the lost for Christ. I'm talking about witnessing to unsaved people. If Jesus is dead, it is useless for you to tell people about your Jesus. but if he's alive, you better. In verse 29, now, if there's no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? I'll never forget this scripture, because I had to write, a, had to write an exegetical paper on it when I was in Bible college, and it did not get the grade that I thought I deserved at the time. So I can preach this one, because my professor's not here. <laughs> He's probably, oh, he may be watching I've had time to study this a little more. What does does this baptism for the dead mean? Some have suggested that it refers to a proxy baptism where believers baptized on behalf of a dead relative so they too can be saved. Let me tell you, the theological word for that is, and I think it might be in the Greek or Hebrew, I'm not sure, but the theological word is hogwash. That is absolutely an unscriptural doctrine because first of all, salvation is a personal matter, and secondly, water baptism doesn't save anybody. While while water baptism should follow salvation, nobody has to be baptized to be saved. The thief on the cross proved that. Now, having made a lesser grade on my paper than I deserved at the time, I I have actually spent some time over the years studying this out. And one of the best explanations I have found, or at least the one I like the best, and I've sort of settled on, is from a guy by the name of Warren Wearsby. He's one of my favorite theologians to read. He explained it this way The phrase probably means baptized to take the place of those who have died. In other words, if there is no resurrection, why bother to witness and win others to Christ? Why reach sinners who are then baptized and take the place of those who have died? If the Christian life is only a dead-end street, get off it. You see why I like Warren Wearsby. But the fact is that because of the resurrection... Every person who lives on this earth will share in the resurrection. And every person will either share in the resurrection of life and go to heaven, or they will share in the resurrection of judgment and go to hell. Because of the resurrection, heaven and hell are both real and everybody will spend eternity in one or the other. So the, re- the, the reality of the resurrection should motivate you and me to reach the lost. The second practical area of our life that this should affect is the area of our suffering and how we deal with it. Raise your hand if you've suffered in this life. Uh, let's do it the other way. If you've never suffered in this life, raise your hand. I was going to talk to you after church. (laughs) We all suffer. I mean, that's just life in this fallen world. That's why we see so many of the, I don't mean to just get on the younger generation, but I'm preaching to someone. That's why we see so many people coming up in this country who it's like they can't handle suffering. It's got to be my way or no way. Because any other way might mean I suffer something. That's just life. We live in a fallen world. You're going to suffer. And listen, the suffering that comes in this life is terrible. If If you've never suffered, then you're a baby, literally. Hang on. It's coming like a freight train. Suffering in this world, in this life, is a fact. Now, Paul didn't even go into the details of all of his suffering here like he did in other passages of Scripture, but here's how he put it. If there's no resurrection, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean, I mean, I mean that brothers, he said, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? And Paul's not talking about dying to self. That he wrote about in Romans chapter six, he's talking about very literal physical dangers that he faced every day. He's saying if there's no resurrection, if death ends it all, if death ends all of the suffering that we face in this lifetime, then why endure suffering? And he goes on to say, if that's the case, then let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Why do we endure suffering? Why is it that we have so many people now in this world and in our country who choose not to endure suffering. And I don't mean this in any way to be critical of those who have struggled with this malady that so plagues even the youngest of those in our society. Trust me, I know, I get it. I know suffering and I know suffering that's so bad that you just feel like you can't take any more stuff. Why is it that there are so many people who when they are suffering feel they have to turn to a bottle or to a drug or, or, or why do we try to just numb ourselves to the suffering? And if that's, if that's anybody who's listening to me today, if you are struggling with why do I even live, then I want somebody to hear me. I want to beg you to take your stand in the hope of the resurrection because everything we do in this life, even as believers, will come up for review at the judgment seat of Christ. But let me let me encourage you while you endure suffering in this lifetime. Paul tells us that the suffering we endure now in the body, in this lifetime, will result in glory at the resurrection. I, I, I shouldn't. I know. I promise we will get to eat lunch if the trumpet doesn't sound first, but I've got to. Listen to what he wrote. This is 2 this is Corinthians 4. We are hard pressed on every side. He's talking about suffering, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. Here he goes into the resurrection so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. What's he talking about? The resurrection and how we deal with suffering because of the resurrection. Listen, you have hope even through your suffering because Jesus is alive. It's written, I believed. Therefore, I have spoken with the same spirit of faith. We also believe and therefore speak because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day for our light is and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Do you understand that your suffering in this lifetime is not light and it's not momentary if you don't have the hope of the resurrection? But because he lives we have the hope we can stand firm we can take our stand and know that what we're going through right now is temporary and even if it kills me yet i will be raised to life and live forever it doesn't get any better all right all right i'm gonna go to the let me talk about the death we face i won't spend as much time on this nobody wants a lot of talk about death I've, I've taken a poll, I have researched this, I've taken numerous polls, and the truth is that right here in the River Valley, the death rate is 100%. I'm sorry. I haven't taken a poll, but I'm pretty sure that's accurate. You know, over the years, I've been in the ministry. I have buried a lot of dear friends, too many as we say. It's, it's one thing to lose a loved one, but I dare say that most people never give much thought to what it's like to actually preach the funeral. Now imagine if you had to do that dozens of times. Imagine if you had to do that hundreds of times or more. I've lost count how many funerals I've done in 36 years of people that I loved, people that I pastored, people I had prayed with, and people that I still miss. Don't get me wrong. I count it an honor every time one of you asks me to do a funeral service for your loved one. But how many funerals will you attend in your lifetime? I bet I will not only attend more than you, most of you, but I'll actually cry with you, pray with you, and offer the eulogy. I'll minister the sermon at the funeral. I've had some years in my ministry where it seemed I was preaching a funeral every other week. And y'all know I'm a crybaby. And all those funerals have made me enjoy doing weddings all the more. <laughs> and you know I've worked in law enforcement too for over 30 years and and some of you have too in our church and I've worked as an investigator I've processed crime scenes. I assure you I've seen the most horrific kinds of death, and I've seen way too much of it. I can tell you that the one, the one, one of the things that I hate the most about living in this world is death. And do you realize that that everything you have ever suffered and everything you will ever suffer in this life? Every sickness, every heartache, every emotional wound, everything you have ever suffered is because death came into this world when the first Adam sinned. How appropriate that it is the our last enemy because it's our worst enemy. And while there are many things in this life that we're not sure of, one thing is certain, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Death touches all of us. It is the one thing that we all have in common, no matter our ethnicity or our race no matter our political affiliation or our denominational affiliation, no matter our level of education, no matter what social or economic class we belong to, unless the Lord comes back first and raptures us, everyone in this room and within the sound of my voice will die. But to those who've taken their stand, and whose hope is in the resurrection, death's final sting has been removed because when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, death lost its victory over your life because death itself was swallowed up in victory. And that brings us to the therefore. In the last verse, and what I've said, when you see the word therefore, you need to look at what it's there for. It's because of everything I've just said. Therefore. And like bookends on the subject of the resurrection, Paul says you've taken your stand in the first verse, explains all this stuff, And then, in the end, at the very end, with the other bookend, he says, Therefore, because of all this, stand firm. And he tells you three ways to do that. Let nothing move you, not even the news. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. We need to be busy serving the Lord. And then remembering that your labor... How many of you have ever labored for the Lord? It's not in vain. Life is not in vain. When you live for the Lord, life is not in vain. And I have to tell somebody one more thing to encourage you as you take your stand. Did you know that the doctrine of the resurrection... And the hope that it brings to help us take our stand in this life goes all the way back to the oldest book of the Bible. Does anybody know what that is? Job. Job was a man who suffered, y'all. Far more than most of us will ever suffer in this lifetime. He lost everything. The only thing the devil let him keep was his wife. who tried to get him to curse God and die. He suffered. And it was actually his hope in the resurrection that helped him to keep on standing, even through all the pain and all the suffering. Listen to how he put it. I mean, imagine you've suffered until you just feel like you can't take more. What else can go wrong? And here was his hope. This is chapter 19 of Job, starting starting in verse 25. I know that my Redeemer lives. This was before he had, he didn't have a Bible like we have. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end, he will stand upon the earth. But it's not just that he lives, listen to what he said. And after my skin has been destroyed, after I'm gone, I'm dead. After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. And then he says this: these words. How my heart yearns within me my heart yearns i'm like many of you sometimes some days i'm tired of this world i'm tired of seeing all that happens to people and what our enemy the devil and death has done to so many people my heart yearns you want to know something funny if you look at that in the hebrew the word heart as i recall is is a word that actually speaks of a kidney (laughs) but it doesn't sound right in english you know sometimes when you translate from one language to another there's not an exact equivalent and it would sound ridiculous for me to stand up here or for job to say my kidney yearns (laughs) and so the word actually came to sort of mean an essential organ and in english we would that would be our heart that's like boy, that's it if it stops it's essential and and so what he is saying is man everything within me yearns for the day that the risen lord comes back to this earth and resurrects my decayed body my flesh and i will see god in the flesh In my flesh, I will see God. I've lived long enough in this world that my heart yearns for the day that I put off this old tent and I'll be resurrected. And I know it's coming because I have taken my stand. Will you take yours? Will you take yours? How many of you will stand on the hope of the resurrection? Would you stand with me? Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, hallelujah. I thank you, Lord, that you died for our sins and that you were buried. But I thank you that on the third day you took your life up again. You were raised from the dead. And I thank you for the hope that that gives us. And we stand in your presence, God. We are taking our stand on the hope of that resurrection that this world is not all there is we will we will we will reach the lost we will endure whatever suffering this world may give because we know that there is a there is a resurrection day coming And this is not the end of it all. Death does not end at all. We thank you that death has been swallowed up in victory. We thank you that those who've died in the Lord, we're going to see them again. Thank you. Thank you, God, for the family reunion that we're going to have one day because of what we're standing on today. Hallelujah. I give you praise. I pray a blessing over these people, Lord. Let the resurrection minister hope to their life right now in this lifetime not just in the hereafter but right now i pray that they will be encouraged by your word and we give you praise and it is in jesus name amen